Well, here we are just days away from Thanksgiving. And yet, if we're totally honest with ourselves, some of us would probably want to admit that you don't feel particularly like thanking God for anything, right? I mean, this pandemic has done a number on virtually all of us. As a result of talking to people and reading a number of surveys in terms of how people are feeling these days, the consensus seems to be that we're wasted, that we are physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually exhausted. And here we are in the midst of this with no let up in sight. And in addition to being exhausted, some of us are just plain anxious. We're worried. We're worried about our, our own health. We're worried about aging parents and their health. We're worried about our kids and their health and education. We're concerned about the financial pressures we may be facing these days. These and so many other things cause us to wonder, why in the world do we go about thinking about uh, this matter of celebrating Thanksgiving? Well, if you think about it, what would be an appropriate time? Yes, this has been a very difficult and trying time, but if you think about it, life is always filled with its challenges and problems, right? Somebody has put it this way, that you're either in a problem right now, you've just come out of a problem, or you're about to enter a problem because life is a series of problems. I mean, that's just what life is all about. So if we're waiting for an appropriate time, frankly, it may never come. I think when it comes to this matter of Thanksgiving, that there's an awful lot that you and I can learn from the pilgrims, those who started this whole tradition, because the first Thanksgiving for them wasn't exactly an appropriate time either. So let's think about the pilgrims. Their history reads like a storybook that points us back to scripture. As if to say, if you really wanna know what it means to walk by faith and to be thankful in the midst of difficulties, difficulties like suffering and disease and even death itself, then examine our story in the light of the Bible and learn from us. And that's exactly what I propose that we do together this morning. So if you have a sermon outline, I want to address the two areas that you see on that outline. So this is kind of be a, a different sort of message this morning as we take a look at some church history and learn how that relates to scripture and apply all of that to our hearts and lives. So the first obvious question then would be this one, who exactly were the pilgrims? Well, for starters, they were young. When the Mayflower, their ship, anchored off what we know today as Provincetown, Massachusetts, the far eastern tip of Cape Cod, after traveling for something like 66 days at sea, we discover that there were something like 102 men, women, and children on board. And uh, they were, for the most part, young married couples in their 20s with a lot of young kids. Sometimes we see paintings of the governor, William Bradford, looking like an old man with his long gray beard. But actually, when he became governor, he was something like 31. And there was even a child uh, born on their journey, a girl who they named Oceanus, appropriately. 
So uh, many of the leaders, in fact, were in their early 20s. So they were very young. In addition to being young, they were also quite diverse. Most of them were skilled laborers, carpenters, leather workers, candlestick makers, bakers, and such. Others were highly educated, having studied at Cambridge University in England. So they were diverse in terms of their occupations and their backgrounds, but they were also quite diverse in matters of faith and religion. Of the 102 passengers, really only something like 41 would be considered pilgrims, that is those who were coming for religious reasons. The rest of the people, they were simply along for the journey, for the thrill of it, for hopefully they uh, imagined a better way of life. So they were young and they were diverse. In addition to all of that, in terms of their beliefs, those who were pilgrims could also be referred to as Puritans. Now back in good old England, the uh, Puritans were so called because they wanted to purify or reform the Church of England. The Anglican Church here in the United States, that would have, of course, become the Episcopal Church. So they were called Puritans because they wanted to purify the state church. But there were different kinds of Puritans. Some of them thought, you know, the best way to bring about reformation and change in the state church is by working within it. Others said, oh, no, 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 it's far too corrupt to stay within it. And so they thought the best way is to leave it, to separate oneself from that particular body and work from the outside in. And those who did that were referred to as separatists, and the pilgrims were separatists. To be more specific, they were separating congregationalists. Now here at City Church, we actually are affiliated with two different denominations. Did you know that? We're affiliated with a group called Converge, many years ago referred to as the Baptist General Conference, and even prior to that, known as the Swedish Baptist Conference. So we have that connection, but we're also connected with another ministry or organization referred to as Conservative Christian Congregational Conference, Four Seats. So we're also part of a congregational group. So in that sense, we're kind of connected historically, you could say, with the pilgrims. They were congregationalists and how they believed about church polity and such. But in addition to that, we might simply refer to them as Christians. They were our brothers and sisters in Christ, could also be labeled, I guess, in terms of a more contemporary term, evangelical Christians. And in terms of their beliefs, let me summarize some of their convictions with this. I hope you can read this wherever you are seated right now. But uh, here's a summary of some of the, their beliefs. They first of all believed in the authority and inspiration of the Bible. They believed in scripture, God is speaking to us, that this is the breathed out word of the living God. So it's trustworthy and it's authoritative terms of guiding us concerning what we are, are to believe and how we're supposed to live. And they'd made use of a Bible translation known as the Geneva Bible, which first came out, I believe, around 1560 or 61. Probably the edition they used was 1599. They certainly did not use the King James Version because King James was the ruler who was persecuting them. We'll hear a little bit more about that shortly. 
but they believed in the authority of scripture. It determined everything for them. And in addition to that, they believed that people by nature are not intrinsically good, but just the opposite, intrinsically evil. That if sin is the color blue, we're totally blue. Our minds are blue, our hearts, our emotions are blue, the wills by which we make decisions are blue, and they taught a doctrine called total depravity, which essentially says we're not as bad as we could be, folks, but neither are we as good as we should be, that we are radically depraved. Every part of us has been influenced by sin. So they realized that they were totally unable in and of themselves to even respond in faith to God. So they also believe then in divine election. God the Father elects, Christ the Son saves those who are the elect, Holy Spirit applies salvation to the elect. So they had this sense of unity regarding the work of the Trinity concerning our salvation. And they also believed that God sovereignly ordained all things whatsoever comes to pass, to quote a phrase from one of their confessions. And they believe that true believers would demonstrate the reality of their faith by living lives of worship and service and evangelistic witness. And finally, we can say that they loved God. They loved one another, they loved life, and they loved God. So the idea that they were cold and drab and formal and legalistic you know, that they wore black all the time. None of those things are true. Maybe later Puritans that settled uh, throughout New England, but not at this particular time. These pilgrims loved God. They loved life. I'm not sure I should tell you this, but I will anyway. One of the first buildings they constructed in Plymouth, Massachusetts was a brewery. So they loved life. They enjoyed God. They loved one another as well. And they also had very definite reasons for leaving England and coming to this new world. In 1609, the congregation uh, in which these people were worshiping in England came under persecution. And so they left England for Leiden, Holland, and they remained there for something like 11 years. But it was a very difficult time of life for them. Difficult because they, 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 it was hard for them to learn the language, hard for them to find steady employment. And uh, so when the opportunity presented itself to leave and come to the new world, they jumped at the chance. And there were four major reasons why they decided to come. First of all, they certainly didn't want their kids to be assimilated into Dutch culture. And that would have been the inevitable outcome they felt if they had remained in Holland. Secondly, as it says here on the screen, they also wanted to escape religious persecution that started under King James, the same King James of King James version of the Bible fame. And they also uh, wanted to evangelize Native Americans. Now that's the one that really strikes me as something of a surprise, but if you read the covenant that they wrote up when they were still on their ship, the Mayflower, called the Mayflower Compact, you read that they were very concerned about the evangelization of Native Americans. Very concerned about that because they had read scripture that Jesus says to go make disciples, baptize them and teach them. And they were concerned to do all of those kinds of things. And they were also coming for religious freedom. But not freedom for everybody to do whatever they wanted to do, freedom for themselves. 
Freedom to worship God according to the dictates of their own hearts, according to how they read and understood the scriptures. Now, you may know that that first winter, they had a very, very difficult time of it. That of the 102 passengers that anchored in November, the following spring, through that difficult winter, only 50 were left. 13 out of 18 housewives perished, and along with them, a lot of the children. So it was a very di difficult time for them. And really, if it wasn't for the care and the support that was given to them by Native Americans, it's doubtful that any of them would have survived. But um, in spite of their losses, on the anniversary of their first time, their, their anniversary in, in the New World, as a result of a great harvest, they decided that they would come together as a congregation, a community, and thank God for a great harvest. It would be the first Thanksgiving, and it lasted three days. And the story is told that when the people had come together, including, by the way, something like 90 Native Americans, that William Bradford, the governor, went around to each table, pausing at each plate, to place five kernels of corn on those plates to remind people of the losses of that previous winter and of their food shortage, when at times that was their daily ration, five kernels of corn. And so it was intended to remind them of those previous losses and to be thankful to God and not take his benefits for granted. And so as you exit the service today, you're going to have the opportunity of picking up a little baggie of corn kernels, which we're encouraging you to use on Thanksgiving Day, to place some kernels of corn on each plate, and maybe during the meal invite people, if they desire to do so, to express Thanksgiving to God for at least one thing. So more about that will be shared later. But if each of these kernels represents an area of life for which you give thanks today, what would those five kernels represent? I mean, for what would we express thanksgiving? Well, the first kernel might remind us to thank God for physical blessings, for heated homes and warm clothes and cars and heated buildings for that matter, like a church building this morning. and. Um, techie toys and cell phones and you know so many of the creature comforts of life. You know, some people are never satisfied with what they have. What a difference it makes to have an attitude of thanksgiving for all things. I think of the prayer of David in, recorded in 1 Chronicles 29 when he says the following, wealth and honor come from you. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. Why? Well, because everything comes from you. The fact of the matter is, we don't own anything. Ultimately, God has entrusted us as stewards or managers of all that he has given uh, to us. I've shared with you as recently, I guess, as last Sunday, that for the last 29 years, Valerie and I have had the privilege of serving in Ukraine. Uh, countries certainly marked with economic extremes. If you were to visit the capital city of Kiev, used to be called Kiev, you would find some people in, living in luxury, beautiful homes, gorgeous large homes, and, and luxury cars and all of that. 
More than likely, since the mafia and corruption are so strong in Ukraine, they've made a lot of their money illegally. In addition to those few that are extremely wealthy, the majority are kind of financially challenged. And yet, in spite of the fact that they have little, at least compared to our standards, often they know a joy and a spirit of contentment because they're not trying to fill the hole in their hearts with stuff. You know, I think of what the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, verse 12. He says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Then he shares some extremes, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So a spirit of thanksgiving makes all the difference in the world. And it leads me to want to ask you this question this morning. Are you constantly preoccupied with what you don't have, or are you thankful to God for what you do have? Well, in light of all of that, I just want to take a moment to express on behalf of my wife and, um, as well, our gratitude to you for the way in which you have welcomed us in your midst. We've been here for several months now and feel like in some ways we've been here for a much longer period of time because of your hospitality. You're a warm, welcoming congregation and we praise God. Second Colonel might remind us of the importance of thanking God for the people in our lives, family and friends. You know, it's so easy for most of us to take others for granted or to become frustrated and irritated when they don't quite measure up to our expectations. Maybe what we need is a Thanksgiving chair, something to remind us to give thanks for the people around us, spouses, children, parents, other relatives, friends, it's letting others know how much we appreciate them and how thankful we are to God for each one. You know, I think of what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The church at Corinth was a mess. It had all kinds of issues going on, divisions and conflict over moral behavior and all sorts of issues. And yet it begins uh, the letter, the first of the letters in uh, chapter 1 by saying, I always thank God for you. So this Thanksgiving, let's thank God for the people who touch our lives. A third colonel might remind us to thank God for his constant care, even in the face of difficulty. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in the verse that was part of that video, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Certainly it's appropriate to thank God when times are good. I think back on some individuals whose stories I know regarding events in their lives this year, how in one case there was the birth of a child after struggling with issues of infertility and miscarriages, another situation where there's marriage after years of no doubt wondering if it would ever come, a job offer after months of struggling with um, unemployment concerns, and a CT scan that revealed that the person's cancer was in remission. So yeah, let's thank God when times are good. But how about when life isn't so good? What do you do when there is no baby? When there's no job offer, you're still single, and the CT scan perhaps reveals that the cancer has spread. Paul says, give thanks 
in all circumstances. Now we read that and we think, really? I mean, Paul, you're not married to my spouse, or you don't work for my boss, or you don't deal with my chronic pain, or whatever the situation may be. So we might want to twist Paul's words to mean maybe we thank him in some circumstances. But you notice that there's no qualifier here. But Paul does not say give thanks for all circumstances. What does he say? Thank God in all circumstances. In other words, that means that our thanksgiving is never for the difficulty itself. We're not thanking God for evil or thanking God for suffering, for example. Instead, we thank him in those circumstances. And so Paul is basically talking about giving thanks as an expression of faith. Our thanks is to be governed not so much by our circumstances, but rather our confidence that two things are true. First of all, that God has promised us as believers never to leave us or forsake us. Even in the most difficult of moments, he's there. Think of the words of the 23rd Psalm where David prays, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will feel no evil. And these next few words have got to be among the greatest in all the Bible. For you are with me, even when I'm facing the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So God promises that in our difficulty, he is there. He is there for us to care for us and to minister to us in all of our need. And so it's when we place our faith and our confidence in God's ability to sustain us in the most difficult of moments, to be there for us, to comfort us, that we're able to thank God in all our circumstances. And then the other reality is that we're able to give thanks in all circumstances because of our conviction that God is at work in and through it all for our ultimate good. A favorite verse among the pilgrims was this one in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. Not from the Geneva Bible, but nevertheless um, a key verse that they would have appreciated. It begins like this, we know, we know. So you notice that Paul starts out not with we think, we want, we desire, no, our hope in difficulties is not based on wishful think, thinking or, for that matter, natural optimism. There is something about which we can be totally certain. What is it? We know that God causes everything. COVID, yeah. Cancer, yeah. Sickness of other types, slander, difficulties in employment, yeah, the whole thing. So, when you lose your parent, or maybe it's being told at a relatively young age, like 30, that you have some terrible disability or you know, you've been stricken with cancer or something, or there's a car accident that takes the life of a loved one, instead of saying, this is meaningless, we respond by recognizing that there's purpose in every difficulty of life. God causes everything to work together for the good. And you notice it does not say all things work out the way I want them to. And that would be nice, but it's not reality, is it? Not every patient gets better. Not every couple that enters marriage lives happily ever after. 
Not every problem gets resolved. So it doesn't say that, neither does it say all things are good. What it does say is that God causes all things to work together for good, and the good is here defined as our conformity to the very character of Christ himself. So it's letting us know that if you're a Christ follower, someone who loves God and called according to his purpose, then God is permitting everything to happen in your life with reference to this kind of purpose. So you and I are being asked to believe that God is going to work through our difficulty to accomplish the good of making us more like Jesus in his character so that the love and the joy and the peace and the patience, for example, of Christ are being worked into our lives even through suffering itself. Well, I certainly don't know what difficulties you're facing as we head into this Thanksgiving week, just as you don't know what might be going on in my own life, but God certainly does know. And so we can be thankful because of his promise to be with us, never to leave us or forsake us, and because of his promise to work in the midst of it all for our good of becoming like Christ. Well, a fourth kernel reminds us to thank God for our salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, let's never forget that we are broken people. We're sinful to the core. But the reality is God sent his own son into such a broken world who fully and completely and perfectly obeys the will of his father and then takes the ultimate price for us on the cross, dying for my penalty and yours, so that there's this double exchange. Through faith in Jesus Christ, all of my guilt, all of my sinfulness is charged against Christ, and he becomes my sin-bearing substitute, and all of his obedience is charged to me. So when God looks down from heaven, his wrath has been satisfied, his justice is satisfied with my forgiveness, I'm declared to be in the right before him through faith in Jesus Christ. I hope you've come to a point in your spiritual journey where you've committed your life to Jesus. And if not, today, as we head into this Thanksgiving week, would be an awesome time to do that through prayer, just inviting Christ to come into your life to confess your need for a Savior. If you've done that, however, if you've entrusted yourself to Christ, I'm wondering, when was the last time that you took time explicitly to thank him for saving you? You know, it's interesting, the state may be the obvious, the pilgrims certainly didn't have smart TVs, didn't have computer games or cell phones, but they did enjoy the greatest gift that a human being could ever experience, which is what? Forgiveness of sin, a clear purpose in life, and the promise that when they die, they be with the Savior himself throughout eternity. So that's the fourth kernel, salvation. A fifth kernel might remind us to thank God for his daily strength in our lives. You see, our entrusting ourselves to Christ is not the end of our journey. In many respects, it's just the beginning because God has given us a very clear purpose in life. Do you know what your purpose is? Actually, it's not just one purpose. You have five purposes according to the scriptures. One of your purposes is to be in fellowship with Christ and with other believing people. 
And so frequently throughout the pages of the New Testament, we're constantly being encouraged to love one another, to bear with one another, forgive one another, submit to one another, serve one another. All of these many one another exhortations throughout the New Testament letters. Well, we can't obey those unless we're in community with other believers. So one of our great purposes is fellowship with Christ and with his people. But a second purpose is to become more like Jesus Christ himself, to grow spiritually, to reflect his character. Another purpose is to serve others. God has given us abilities, all kinds of other resources, uh, desires and passions, life experiences. And while he certainly wants us to have servant hearts so we can step in and serve wherever there's a need that we can meet, he also wants us to have a primary area of service where our primary ministry is a reflection of the passions, the interests, the desires, the skills that he's given to us. And if that for you is not your employment picture, frankly, it's kind of a job for you and not much more, then hopefully you have an area of service in and through the life of the church that does reflect how God has put you together in terms of your temperament and personality. And then he's given us a desire to reach out to others who do not as yet know him. And finally, another one of your purposes is to worship God as a way of life. We need his strength to do this, right? And so Jesus, having given us these five purposes, ends just before he goes to heaven with this promise, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So let's really be thankful this holiday season. Let's take the time on Thursday as we're gathered about a table, perhaps, maybe with family and friends, to put out some kernels of corn on each plate and to reflect on what they might represent, thanking God for physical blessings, thanking him for family and friends, certainly thanking him as well for care, even in the face of difficulties, thanking him for salvation, thanking him for being our daily strength. I wanna close the teaching time today by having kind of an extended time of prayer as we thank God for his benefits to us. And so if you're physically able, I'm gonna invite you to stand right now and join me as I lead us in a time and a season of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we pause to acknowledge that every good and perfect gift comes from above from you. And we're grateful certainly for our heritage, for pilgrims who had faith in you and for the many lessons that we can learn from their lives. Lord, we're thankful for physical blessings. And yet we wanna pray for the many in our broken world who suffer and are malnourished and invite you to use us to ease that pain. We thank you for our nation, for the freedom to worship, we pray for our elected officials that they would look to you for wisdom. Lord, we thank you for first responders and those in the military who right now are even defending our freedoms. We ask you to protect military personnel and their families, and may the church in places of great difficulty experience your protection and strength. Lord, we thank you for our church. We thank you for the leadership board and the staff and each ministry team. We thank you that 
for those who have been chosen to give leadership to us in a variety of ministries and pray your blessing upon each one. We ask, Lord, that they would have an ear, give an ear to your word and an ear to the concerns of this church in order to lead the body in accordance with biblical principles and compassion. And Lord, as people are so led, may the church follow in ways that demonstrate respect and joy. Lord, we thank you for the many volunteers in this place, those whose ministries are visible and those who work behind the scenes. Thank you for Sunday school teachers and youth leaders and children's workers and student leaders and musicians and technical support people and for the involvement of the people of this church in our lives to encourage us and challenge us and to love us. Thank you for our, our church's ministries, both inside and outside these walls through worship and fellowship ministries like growth groups and compassion projects. Lord, thank you for the students. Thank you for their enthusiasm and service in this place. And we also thank you for seniors in the many ways that they minister to each one of us. We thank you today for the privilege of worship, for opportunities to hear your word each week and to sing your praises and to serve you through the material and spiritual gifts that you have given to us. Father, may you meet all of our financial needs as a church. May we be good stewards of all that you've entrusted to us. We're grateful for our families, for our children and parents and spouses and grandparents and for giving strength to our single parents and single adults. Father, we're even grateful for times of disappointment and difficulty because we have sensed your presence and because such times have led us to acknowledge our dependence upon you. And we are so grateful today for your son, Jesus Christ. In him, we have found forgiveness and acceptance and purpose and salvation. And yet we pray for the salvation of those in our midst and beyond who may not as yet know you, that you would enable them to respond in faith to the gospel. We're grateful for your continued presence and power in our lives. Thank you for the special season called Thanksgiving and the opportunities it provides to express gratitude to you. Grant that we might see each and every day as a day of thanksgiving. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>